The Solid 7 Podcast is a proud affiliate of GORUCK. GORUCK designs and builds the toughest gear on the planet, tested and proven at thousands of GORUCK events held all over the world and led by current and former Special Forces combat veterans. The GORUCK brand stands for Building Better Americans, the Special Forces Way of Life, and a life-or-death approach to building the world's toughest gear. Visit Solid7Podcast.com and click on the GORUCK link to learn more about their gear and events, and a portion of every purchase and every event registration you make will go to support us here at the Solid 7 Podcast. Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. Welcome back to the Solid 7 Podcast, a better than average podcast, if I do say so myself. And we all know that I do. Uh, I am, of course, your gracious host, Kale, and super excited to have with us here this week, who we've actually teased on several previous episodes at this point, basically since Sandlot Jacks. Uh, Miss Jala Shaw, head of Go Work Tribe Kids. Um, a, your, your staff at CrossFit training seminars. I'm slaughtering it. We'll, we'll That's just get right. to it. And then I'm headquarters seminar staff for the kids seminar staff at CrossFit headquarters. I'm not even going to hide behind editing or anything. I had to explain <laughs> it to me twice before we hit record and still couldn't get it right. Uh, and then an elementary school teacher just for more stuff to do and a business owner and operator. And, uh, you're just into a lot of stuff. And uh, yeah. now you're here with us. So welcome. It's so great to have you. Thanks, Kale. It's awesome to be here. So uh, the the podcast is um, always and has always been and will always be fueled by Jocko Go. This created we had there was a little bit of friction here. It was tough to book you around <laughs> this, but you have you have a legitimate out that we'll get to. But I'm still stand true here, so I'm going to crack open uh, my pink mist Jocko Go here and uh, cheers, and uh, we'll get cheers. into it. So, uh, this one, uh, it's, it's been funny. Like you've been a hot topic on the podcast for a bit now. Um, because, uh, basically since, like I said, since Sandlot Jacks, um, we got into a few of the fit talks there. And of course, so many of them are, are killer and, and listeners, if you haven't heard us talk about it before, fit talks are just this really cool aspect of Sandlot Jacks, uh, where it's, they're basically little Ted talks, but from thought leaders around health and, and fitness and, um, leadership and yours just, just blew us away. I mean, it was just so fantastic. And uh, I think it's, it's out on YouTube now, right? Like it's available. So, so we'll link to it in the show notes. Um, so that listeners will finally know we're, we're not overselling it. But so then, uh, so we did our uh, Sandlot Jacks recap on our drive back to central Florida from, from like, literally we're driving down the road, mics in our faces. Some laws may have been broken. It's hard to know for sure. Um, <laughs> but so we were talking about it then and then, uh, ended up having Dan Skidmore cadre DS on the very next episode, uh, to kind of recap the games and give us the behind the scenes of the games aspect. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, you're tight with him and his wife is D and, and she's doing tribe kids with you. So we're, t- we're talking about you again and your story and then your kind of return to, to doing brag heavy and just all that stuff. And the whole time I'm like, man, John has got to come on the podcast. Like we've got to have, we got to get these stories firsthand. And then a couple episodes back, of course, um, I have Brad Mason from the give team on. And, uh, you know, we're talking about your story and how that all ties in. Once again, I'm like, yeah, we need, we need to make it happen. And, and here you are. So really appreciate you making the time to do it. 
So, um, there's a, there's a lot to your story in between, um, just what I know about you from social media, from, you know, seeing you through GoRuck and through, throughout that agency, from hearing your fit talk, from listening to your episode of, um, glorious professionals, um, hashtag Jason, bring it back. Um, (laughs) but, uh, and then on the thousand hours outside, there's just, um, so much that I would love to have you relay to the listeners that I want to pick your brain on. Um, and 100% we won't have time to get to it all today. It's sorry, listeners. That's just the way it is. Um, and so it's tough to pick where to start and when in doubt, um, I say, go back to the beginning. So where does, where does your story start? Do you want me to get into like the athletic side and hook into Gorok selection or the traveling side and talk about uh, how I ended up in Afghanistan? Or... <laughs> well, yes, yes to all of those things. Well, let's 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 go just a, a we'll just do a glimpse. Like we can skip a conception, but maybe like a childhood kind of where where you grew up, what that experience was, kind of get the background picture of what led you into. Um, I mean, just such varied things. I don't even know. Yeah. I had like a very good community and parents and siblings growing up and just had a pretty like idyllic childhood. I would say my dad was a pilot and my mom was a nurse practitioner and I had a brother and a sister who loved being outside and doing sports. My brother played soccer and was a runner, did cross country growing up. My sister was into all the gymnastics, dancing kind of sports, uh, did gymnastics and ballet growing up. Um, we lived in Seattle, but in a suburb. So in the forest, in the evergreens, our house butted right up to the woods. And, you know, it was the eighties and nineties growing up. So my mom would say bye in the morning in the summer, and we'd go out and play all day in the woods or go to the pool in our community and play in the pool and no adult supervision whatsoever. So you can imagine how that looked. My brother and I had bikes. I a banana seat, he a BMX and I was the youngest. He was the middle. And so we'd ride everywhere with our friends. He would launch off the BMX bike jumps and I would try to follow on my banana seat bikes, no helmets. You know how it goes, of concussions, course. whatever. And we <laughs> but all, we just we had all... this kind of freedom and sense of like the outdoors is ours and we should go really hard and play really hard and get better at the stuff we get better at. Uh, my parents let me go to the pool by myself starting at like six, seven years old. I would just ride my bike over there and play all day. Nice. So, really like having this, this not helicopter parenting, the opposite of it growing up, just this trust that we would make the right decisions and that our community would take care of us if they, they needed to. Um, we were free to do as we wanted to, yet we were also very disciplined. My dad's family's history, history is German. So they're like very regimented and in order. And we were like pretty clean and tidy and just like that personality. And then my mom's side is Puerto Rican and uh, Hispanic. And so like high emotions, crazy kind of energy. Um, but we were allowed to be ourselves and they, they let us do that. So we had good food, good community, good parents. And my brother and I were pretty close. My sister's a lot older than us. So she was off doing her things, but now we're closer. And when we're older, we're all still into sports. Um, 
we could talk more about how this trajectory happened, but I'm still doing endurance sports in my forties. My brother does cycle cross and he's a full-time doctor, but he still finds time to compete in cycle cross, which is like mountain biking and mm-hmm. cross country running in one. Yes. And my sister is a PE teacher now and teaches dance and many other things and is still very athletic. So yeah, I think having that childhood of freedom outside to do what we wanted to was key to kind of building this need to be in these environments that I found myself in across my adult life. Yeah, for sure. No. And what, like, uh, I'm not as well-traveled as you, but I've gotten around some and at least until we had kids, which our, our kids are still pretty little right now, five and three, soon to be four and six. Uh, but a lot of our vacations would be planned around hiking and man, did the pack Northwest just knock our socks off. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's like hiking through a, a fairy tale and coming from my wife's a legit Florida native. I I've been here most of my life. Uh, and you know, we went out and played in the woods and those sorts of things. It's a wonder that nothing killed us in the woods down here though. The snakes, the gators, the everything. And up there, like nothing in the woods, I feel like is trying to kill you. Maybe bears, maybe you get some bears. But uh, I, I mean, just the most incredible hiking, the most incredible scenery. I just can't ima- imagine having that be your playground as a kid. Would is so cool. Yeah, it's amazing. And just like you said, not much is trying to kill you there. I spent a lot of time in Southern California in my later twenties and thirties, and there, like everything's trying to kill you in the forest in Southern California: snakes, mountain lions, whatever. And you see them too. But in Washington, there's nothing besides like slugs. You step on them and slip around. (laughs) There's probably like cougars and bears and all that in the Alpine area. But we're like urban interface, which is like a bunch of suburbs in the forest and then like forest sprinkled in and then more suburbs. So really like, unfortunately, the humans probably drove most of the things out that wanted to kill us. So it was quite safe as kids in these planned communities and the suburbs with some forests sprinkled in. Dude, mountain lions are the ones that really freak me out. Like yeah. we, we have bears <laughs> here, but it's kind of like we have deer here. Like Florida deer aren't real. They're like dog size. And so we've got black bears. Do I want to run into one on a trail? No. Is it probably going to run off? Yeah. Um, so, but like a bear mauling, that's just a bad day. It's just bad timing. A mountain mm-hmm. lion will straight stalk you. Like to a mountain lion, you're just more prey. I, I, dude, I do not want to mess. If you have a cat, like you understand, like the only reason they don't eat us is because they're not big enough. If you have a house cat, you, you just, you just plus those things up. Like look at what they do to birds and squirrels. That's us for mountain lions. No, thank you. No, thank you. I want no part of that. True. <laughs> so you have, which I, I kind of learned through your fit talk, like just um, genetically, um, really, you've got um, kind of this this thread of, of elite athleticism running in your family, right? Yeah. Uh, my grandfather, Leon Joslin, he ran at o- the Ohio State University in the 1930s with Olympian Jesse Owens, they ran on the four by 100 meter track team together. And even before that, he played football growing up in Grand Rapids, Michigan with President Ford. And so my grandpa is kind of like the Forrest Gump of history. He learned, he lived until he was a hundred. So he lived that long and probably part of history anyway. So he was hanging out in the white house with President Ford as like a high school football buddy in the seventies. And then 
Um, Jesse Owens family is still in contact with my family, like generations later, the grandchildren and great grandchildren, my aunt still stays in contact with them. But yeah, my grandpa was a great sportsman. My grandma ran all pretty well into her late eighties doing masters track and field. And my grandpa, uh, then I talked about my dad who's 83 now, but he can still run like a 24 minute 5k at 83. And he qualified for the Boston marathon in his fifties multiple times and ran a sub three hour marathon as an old man. And, uh, I think his fastest marathon might've been around 248 when he was 55 or something like that. Uh, my brother is an athlete. He ran cross country in college uh, and played soccer up until then and does cycle cross and still plays soccer and runs sister an athlete did gymnastics in college and still does all the things and dabbles in CrossFit. Uh, my aunt was a sportswoman. She wrote a book about riding her bike across Canada in I think 1976. So I wasn't born yet. And there were probably no bike lanes or anything like that, but she biked from the East coast to the West coast of Canada and wrote a book about it. <laughs> and, uh, let's see. My mom isn't like traditional sportswoman, but she grew up dancing and she was on the Latin version of American bandstand oh, in wow. the fifties. Yeah. So my mom's kind of dancing on that side and did hula like well into her seventies and still dabbles in it, but has some more mobility issues, but loves dancing. So yeah, everyone in my family is kind of an athlete. So that was really normal for me growing up. And if you weren't doing a sport, then there was probably something wrong or you broke a leg or something, but everyone was always in competitive sports from my grandfather down to me and my brother and sister. So it was just something that we did kind of like a religion for us. So what do you gravitate towards athletically? I was a competitive swimmer and runner growing up. So I started swimming on the national team, the junior national team when I was about 12. And that's just like a Olympic development team. So you would make junior nationals if you were swimming with this team, hopefully. Uh, So I started doing double workouts when I was 12 years old. My mom would wake up at 4.30 to drive me to swim practice before it was junior high school or our, our version of middle school. Then I'd go to school all day eat a snack when I got home and go back to swim practice. And I did that, you know, well into my twenties through college, but I was just swimming and dabbling and running. Um, but I was a good enough runner that I got a scholarship to swim at a division one school, university of New Mexico. And I just walked on the track team and the cross country team. <laughs> Cause I was like, this is fun. And I was good enough to walk on the team. You so. walked on track and cross country at a D one school. Yes, I wasn't great. So it ended up being fun, but I did make the travel team on the track team one for a whole year of my competitive eligibility, my junior year. So now yeah. I've got a rabbit trail us here a little bit, <laughs> um, not on the level that you were competing at, but I'm an OG swimmer myself. So oh, cool. as a small child, I grew up at two different pools. I, I my, my yeah. early ages, like up till five, we lived in, uh, in Illinois and around Dixon, which mm-hmm. meant if you were, if you wanted to swim, there were a couple different pools involved. So we had this awesome, massive above ground pool in town. It was a Memorial pool. And we'd go there the whole time it was open. And then once it closed, then we'd go to the Y. And it was all the same lifeguards at both pools, family, friends with all the lifeguards. So, I mean, I went off the, we always called it the high dive. I realize now it was probably like a three meter board at, at, <laughs> at Memorial Pool at like, there's pictures of the lifeguards 
holding me off the one meter board. I'm screaming. They're holding me off the one meter board. I'm hanging onto a lifeguard's thumbs and there's a lifeguard down below. And I, I, maybe I was four, maybe I was four, but I ended up going off the three meter board there at five, which I told my mom, like, I've got a five-year-old. I'm like, what were you thinking? It's like, you were, the lifeguard said you were fine. I assume you were fine. I'm like, if I had landed on my back or my stomach at three meters, that would have been a bad day. Um, but That's the 80s and 90s for you. Oh, it was the best. It was the best. And so I ended up on the swim team at the Y at five. They didn't have an age group for me. We were the Dixon Dolphins. There was a theme song that I will not sing on the podcast, but I remember it. Um, I was actually teaching it to my kids the other day because they're doing swim lessons and stuff now. Um, mm-hmm. But so then uh, when we moved down here, I didn't keep swimming competitively and I wish I had, but I was always an avid swimmer. Uh, and then once I got back into high school, I swam all through high school. So uh, swimmers know, I need to know what your events were. I was 400 individual medley and 200 meter breaststroke. I was a, a breaststroke and an IM swimmer. Uh, awesome. Now I'm going to embarrassingly share what I'm pretty sure was my best ever 100 breaststroke time, which I think was either a 121 or a 123. So I'm going to need to Yards know yours. Um, gosh, I'm old and this is America. I don't know. <laughs> um, um, it was probably yards. Yeah. For the listeners, American colleges and, uh, the short course season is yards. And then, uh, the Olympic, um, circuit and the European slash anyone else in the world is meters. So if you're talking about yards team times, they're a little slower than meters. I mean, uh, faster than meters cause they're shorter. Um, but yeah, I don't even remember my best time in uh, 100 yard breaststroke was probably 106. Dang, that's getting it. <laughs> that is getting it. The only <laughs> I wouldn't remember mine because it's it's the only time of mine, I competitive time of mine, I remember, and it was just because I set my PR at districts where we were actually at the good pool. Awesome. We actually had the electronic timing and the touch plates, uh, and all that stuff. I feel like swimming's changed so much now. This is definitely not what I had you on to talk about, but swimming doesn't get enough love. But like when, uh, like when I was still swimming competitively, like free was always a straight legged kick. Like we learned, you pointed your toes, you locked your knees out. And when you watch them now, and I don't know if this changed while you were still swimming, uh, but you, you watch Olympic competitive swimming, uh, you know, college now, there's a bend in the knee in their kick and it drives me nuts. I'm sure it's faster, but I'm like, no, you're wrong. You're just wrong. <laughs> well, we should just talk about how tough swimmers are. I mean, Two of the three podium finishers at the GORUCK Games were collegiate swimmer. Uh, actually, no. First place was volleyball, right? Second place swimmer. Yes. Now, so volleyball, whatever. They're just swimmers that don't have any water. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, I, I always maintained in high school because like I was always a non-traditional athlete. So like I swam, I raced BMX. I raced BMX all over the country when I was a teenager. Cool. Um, and uh, so it's like, you know, you're not, those are not cool jock sports. Like, there was no letter for BMX in high school. Um, and so, you know, I, some of my, my friends that played football and stuff, they'd razz me. I'm like, listen, I'm 100% positive I could come out and survive your practice. I'm also 100% positive you could not survive my practice. Dude. We did this in university. At University of New Mexico, we shared the weight room with the football team because swimming, you know, is non-revenue. We just get in the weight room when we can. Yeah. And a lot of the girls are 
probably just as strong as some of the non like larger men on the football team. So we had a challenge day where they came to the pool and they were against us in sprints and stuff like that. But we were doing like body weight kind of not specific body weight, but adjusting the weight to our body weight ratio and going against them in the gym. We had like a lat pull down, which, you know, all swimmers are strong in their lats and like girls were beating football players. We did a bench press, but I uh, used math to see like who was stronger relative to their body weight. And the girls swim team like crushed the football team on eight of 10 of our challenges. We yeah. had five in the water and five in the weight room, but man, I think swimmers are really versatile. Sometimes they're not so coordinated on land, but they learn stuff really quick and become coordinated. Whereas other sports, it's hard to enter the water from a land sport, no matter who you are, you know? Well, and I think it's such a great base for anything else you want to do. You look at how many of our, our high school athletes and beyond, you know, a lot of their, their time is spent focused, like in the weight room or in strength or, you know, these days it's gotten a little more advanced. You're doing some interval training, some different stuff like that, but just nothing's going to give you the combination of strength and aerobic base that swimming is going to nothing. And so like right now, my, my son, you know, he's a little hesitant on some of the, the swimming. He's the, he's just the cautious kid. He's got to weigh everything out. He's got to measure. He's got to take his time. And he's like, why do we have to keep doing this? I'm just like, buddy, just, just stick with it. I promise you. You will thank me eventually. Whatever you want to do, you will thank me eventually once once you have this down. That And I'm just like, I grew up a swimmer. It's non-negotiable. You're going to swim, kid. <laughs> so just deal with it. So great. But uh, so swimming uh, takes you, th- you know, through to college. You're, you're participating in D1 athletics. What are you what are you learning in school, though? What are you there for? <laughs> I was majoring in political science and secondary education. So I wanted to be a teacher, but I also wanted to be in politics, which is kind of funny. Um, This is an aside that maybe not that many people know, but from seventh grade until 12th grade, I was class vice president every single year. And then in college, I was a student senator at University of New Mexico, which is basically like a small city. We had like 35, 40,000 students at University of New Mexico. So you run like in a legit campaign. Yeah. And you have debates and all this. So I became a student senator at University of New Mexico, uh, was a senator for a couple of years and then ran for vice president of University of New Mexico. But uh, as a female athlete who didn't have very much time to do all the campaigning and all the fundraising and all that, uh, I did not win. Uh, Sorority, our Greek system is super strong. So Greeks win. But uh, (laughs) that was a great experience. And I really loved being in politics if you call seventh to 12th grade politics, but definitely at the university of New Mexico, that was politics. We, we use like Robert's rules of order in our yeah. meeting. You know, we have our constitution and all these things uh, that any government has. And I really wanted to go into the United States government and do something in the department of state policymaking. And so I was kind of leading that way. It was either the education department of education or the department of state. So I was trying to kind of build my base for that. And then uh, after college, I wanted to go into the United States Peace Corps, which I ended up doing. And I thought like this would build a, a great kind of global awareness, a world awareness. And then I'd be better in policy when I got back to the United States. Uh, So that's what I wanted to do. That's what I was learning when I was in college. 
Uh, but I was also like very sheltered. So I didn't drink or do any drugs, just like normal college things that most people experiment with in college. I had like a couple of serious boyfriends, um, but I didn't like date. I didn't do any of the fun stuff in college. And I was like pretty uh, self-confident. So even like hazing at the, at the university level, uh, I did not participate in hazing even <laughs> at my university and somehow still was on the swim team and did all that. So I feel like I was very sheltered. So when I got out of university and went into the Peace Corps, I had traveled abroad, but didn't really like speak foreign languages besides Spanish because that's my mom and grandma's first language, Spanish. Uh, I hadn't really like learned out in the world. I went abroad with my mother, but she spoke all the languages and took me all the places. So it wasn't really awareness building. So when I went into Peace Corps, it was like, oh, this is the world and I'm living in it. I went to Peace Corps in China too in 2001. So they had just joined the World Trade Organization, but Southwest China was undeveloped, straight up communist, like more pure communism than is now. Uh, It was still communism with capitalist characteristics is what a lot of people called it. But like I was in a work unit when I was in Peace Corps, I was working as a professor at Sichuan University in Southwest China, in Chengdu, China. And I worked in a communist work unit where you had to report to your communist work unit leader in order to get like a stapler or to make copies and stuff like that. So I really learned about communism from the inside when you're a Peace Corps volunteer, you have to be part of your community and you work within your community, what they want you to do. So I was a professor at the university teaching English to kids that were my age. I was like 23 when I was a professor there. Uh, But I was inside of that communist system, learning all about it. I speak Mandarin quite fluently from my time in the Peace Corps still like 20 years ago now. And uh, I learned a lot about how who Chinese people are, what Chinese culture is, and who the people are outside of communism. And that was so amazing to me because studying politics, I was like, oh gosh, communism. One of my professors from University of New Mexico is like, I'm not talking to you for two years while you're there because you're supporting this regime and stuff like that. But when you get to any country and you're there, you're like, oh, most people want the same thing in life. Yes. They want to have a good family life, be able to support their family, like have some happiness, have some food. And like, that's kind of the the core of every religion, every culture, people want the same thing. So when you get on this like human to human level, that's where it's at, you yeah. know? And so in Peace Corps, I was just this human living with other humans. And yeah, I'm learning about communism from the inside, but you really see how good humans are to their core. And that was like, that was very beautiful to me. I was like super scared to go into China, not speaking Chinese very well and not knowing anything about it. And then just to be in there. And I still know Chinese culture and language probably better than Hispanic culture and language. And that's my heritage. So, uh, Anywhere I hear Chinese spoken still in my community, I just talk to the people and I still have the same Sichuan accent. I still speak Sichuan dialect. Like I know about the food, the spices, and it's, it was so adventurous to me that um, we're going on a tangent, but that's what kind of launched my love of being um, out in the world and doing these things. 
And that's when I um, started going the state department way. Right. So um, eventually I get there and we can talk about that, but I was in China during the first bird flu in 2002 or three and the Peace Corps evacuated all the volunteers that year. And I wasn't done with my two year service. So at that point in Peace Corps history, you could choose any country that you wanted to continue your service at. And I was like, Madagascar. And they're like, everyone wants to go there. So you can't. (laughs) (laughs) And then I was like, Micronesia. And they were like, oh yeah, there's an opening in Micronesia in two months. So you can go home to the US for two months and then join the training there. I was like, sweet. So I served a little over a year and a half in China. And then I was going to restart my service in Micronesia for another two years. I got to go home for two months and then launched off to Micronesia. And I was in the on the island of Yap in Micronesia. And, uh, you know, that's part of the Pacific Front in World War II. So back into it. I'll let you ask some <laughs> questions. I've been talking for a long time. <laughs> oh, no, it's no, I could just let you keep going. But so, what? you know, uh, you know a seventh grader... Um, interested in politics is is <laughs> abnormal. I'm not saying you were a nerd in full disclosure. If I could dig up my fifth grade class picture, um, I was wearing uh, an actual suit and a power tie, 100% inspired by Michael P. Keaton. Um, I've been a politics junkie. My Alex whole- Keaton, Michael Fox, Alex yes. Keaton. There uh, you go. <laughs> and, uh, so, you know, I, I've been a politics junkie my whole life, uh, much to my dad's chagrin. Um, uh, we, we fell on very distinctly different sides of the political, <laughs> of, of what's commonly described as the p- political spectrum. I don't believe in a left, right political spectrum. I believe in a zero to 100 political spectrum. Uh, it's either anarchy or tyranny. And I'd really like to be somewhere just shy of the middle. Um, but, uh, dad and I, we, great relationship. We loved each other and would debate. It would freak everybody else out. Everybody else was very uncomfortable. Dad and I had a lot of fun debating. Um, but, uh, so no, no judgment there, but was the draw always for you? Was it always people? Was it always service? Cause that's kind of seems certainly like where the thread is there as it progressed into adulthood. Yeah, I think that's, Earlier in my life, it was probably like being famous and being a senator or like serving in the government. And that was super cool. I want to be like a famous politician. But my dad was always like, hmm, so much fame in politics. Hey, it <laughs> never mind. <laughs> it's going to make a very divisive political joke and I'm just going to let it ride. We're just going to keep going. Um, but-, but yeah, my dad was very supportive. <clears throat> you know, My parents never said no to any of our ideas unless they were like life-threatening, which maybe my brother's quarter pipe in the middle of the street was life-threatening at some point, but, (laughs) but yeah, like they, they wanted me to do what I wanted to do and supported it. My dad was like, you're going to be a great politician. You can do whatever you want to do. So they supported me. Like my friends at school supported me. I think I was in this kind of like nerdy cool space because I was really good at a sport. And I tell a lot of the parents at school and a lot of the kids that I mentor that sports kind of give you the secret sauce. Like when you do sports, you have a lot of self-confidence because you learn how to fail over time in a sport. You're, you don't start perfect in a sport as a kid and you get better and better as time goes on or you don't, but you're still pushing yourself to be stronger or do this technique better. And I think I got a lot of self-confidence from being in sports. Whereas if I was only a student officer, I was the biggest dork. 
I didn't go to parties. I didn't have cool clothes. I looked back at my pictures and I was like, kind of chubby. Swimmers are kind of chubby growing up. You know, we eat a lot of food and we float in the water. Yes. So we need that. But I was like kind of chubby and like not very hot by whatever the popular standards were. But I was in this like free zone of being a good athlete and having self-confidence. And I was a student officer. So People supported me. I was friends with the cool kids and friends with the nerds. And I sat in this like really great kind of idyllic zone of not having all this toxic peer pressure that a lot of other kids had and made their their school life just kind of depressing. I was also really naive about all the things that were going on around me, but in a good way that I just focused on my sport and my grades. And sometimes I did student officer things, but the time I did it, I don't even know what yeah. I did. Well, and there, I mean, there's something I mean, to be, I was a nerd, yeah. but I was like, okay with it. Yeah. You know? Well, and there's something to be said for, and I, I do think that our kids now tend to be over-programmed. Uh, and it's definitely yeah. something I'm trying to stay conscious of, you know, raising kids of my own at this point. But, you know, very similar experience. I mean, you know, I was SGA president my senior year in high school and I did the swimming and obviously we were destined to be friends. Um, But, um, you know, but there's something to be said. And it was very similar. My parents weren't overly strict. I I didn't, you know, there wasn't a curfew. There wasn't a lot of rules, but I was surrounded by good people and I I was just too busy to get into too much trouble. And so there's something to be said, like being busy Mm -hmm. with good things doesn't leave much room for for the bad things. There just wasn't, wasn't time for it. I was such a dork that I would rather hang out with my grandparents on the weekend and my brother than like do anything else. So like my grandma Villalobos is my Puerto Rican grandma. We would go to her house on the weekend and she would put my hair in rags, which is like the the old school way to curl your hair. And I was so excited that my grandma would do my hair and we'd make rice and beans. We would like watch the beans soak and the rice soak and her prepare it. And then my dad would come and get us a day and a half later and I'd have like beautiful hair that my grandma did. And we'd have like five pounds of rice and beans. And my brother and I, like there was no TV, no computer. My grandma had a radio and a record player and we would like sit around listening, listening to Castilian music from Spain. And she would like play the castanet sometimes and we would hang out with my grandma like all weekend. <laughs> it was so like... I look back on it and I'm like, dang, yes. we had like so good. We weren't rich. We were yeah. just like middle class, but we had really good family and a great community and sports. And it was like, it's awesome. so, it's so hard to beat home cooked Puerto Rican food. Uh, <laughs> I mean, true. I've, I've grown up in central Florida. Um, yeah. uh, you know, I I've been involved at an assemblies of God church here forever. I worked there for a long time. Many of my closest friends are from there. It's probably, I don't know, 78% Puerto Rican. Um, <laughs> so like, for instance, I know that the proper name for an empanada is a pastelillo. Um, and so, oh my God, you're, you're Puerto Rican. Oh yeah. yeah. Now, <laughs> there's this great story um, I, that I've talked about on the podcast about how I had had all these friends and lived in central Florida for, you know, decades, but no one had told me about Mofongo and I had to discover it myself as an adult on a cruise in Puerto Rico. And I came back and yelled at people I'm like, why, why, why did, did no one tell me, me about this? Um, but I, I say that I, I lived, uh, I rented a room from a, a Puerto Rican woman who was a leader in our church for a while. Oh. And I had always had like uh, ghetto pastelitos that kids were selling to raise money after church and they had been cooked hours before they were still delicious. But <laughs> one time she wasn't a cooker, but one time she made them fresh while I was at the house with the the ground beef and the potato and that, 
It's the best thing I've ever eaten in, in my life. People, you need to find this. Seek out an elderly Puerto Rican woman. Oh my uh, God. And, and just beg whatever it takes. Make it happen. Uh, <laughs> That's in, what in I need life. in my life. So my yeah. Puerto Rican grandma died when I was like 15 or 16. And at that point in life, like I hadn't, I hadn't learned all the secrets yet. And it was so sad. Now in my adult life, I'm like, why didn't I learn all the secrets? The, next time you're in Orlando, I have a mega church full of them for you. Oh, we'll just, we'll just go hang. We'll Are make. you Christian or Catholic or what's your religion? Uh, Christian. Yeah. I'm Catholic, so I'll fit right in. Yeah, whatever. Right It'll be fine. It'll be fine. Uh, um, but yeah, and then on the other side is my German heritage grandparents. And my grandma on that side was like the best baker. If you wanted a birthday cake, well, of course, everyone wants a birthday cake. You just tell her the flavor you want, and she makes it from scratch, like anything you want. So when that grandma, that grandma lived until I was in my 20s, um, we would go over to that grandparent's house for the weekend. They lived in West Seattle, right on the water there. So we would dig for gooey ducks, which are a kind of clam with a really long giant neck. And they descend into the sand and you're just like digging, digging, digging in like two foot deep holes. We would dig for these clams with our hands. And my grandma would be in there making cake of whatever flavor you wanted. And my grandpa would be like digging with an actual shovel so that we would actually get some clam. <laughs> uh, that's what we did on the week when we were kids. We would just go and hang out with our grandparents. And I'm sure my parents were having fun and doing their own thing or sleeping or something. Yes, 100% <laughs> they were. But you know, like that's, that's what creates, I think I'm a strong person with good self-confidence and I have a good moral compass, I think, but that's what started it. Mm -hmm. Being outside, doing sports, like connecting with my grandparents and my family. It was just kind of this, you know, we had struggles, but we also had each other and we had outside and our sports. So it was like this community. I'm still best friends with my childhood best friend who I swam with. My friend, Julie, she was a really great swimmer. She swam in the Olympic trials in I think 2000, uh, maybe only once, but she swam at University of Washington, which is a powerhouse Pac-10 school. Um, I'm still friends with Julie. We've been friends since she was eight and I was nine. And we're swimming a 5K swim in Lake Washington. Oh, next wow. Month. So we've been friends our whole lives, yeah. basically. My other best friend, I also met her through swimming. Um, she She's a, an FBI officer now, but I met her swimming when I was 11 and she was 10 or I was 12 and she was 11, but around the same time. And she's still one of my best friends too. Yes, I have two or three best friends, but superlatives don't work here. Right, right. <laughs> but my point is like having that strong community and having that sport bond, it kind of uh, permeates throughout your entire life. And that confidence that I got from sports leaked into the Peace Corps assignments mm -hmm. when I was unsure of myself or didn't quite know how to navigate a culture. Guess what I ended up doing? Sports. In China, uh, I taught swimming at the Sichuan Institute of Sport, which is like their Olympic training system. I went to the pool and I was like, hey, can I coach here? And I didn't know Chinese very well yet. It was my first few months. And when you're in Peace Corps, you have to do a community project too, even though you're a volunteer <laughs> for a living. But uh, my community project would become swimming. So I coached swimming three times a week at the Sichuan Institute of Sport. And uh it was amazing. I, I integrated with that, those people in that um, community. And I still have one or two friends from the swim team back then. And uh, 
in Micronesia, it was sport too. I started a women's running club there, which um, it's a matriarchal society for land ownership, but run by the patriarchy. So women don't have too many rights there. And to start a sport club with just women was kind of um, radical, but I started a running club there and there's a couple of ladies still running almost 20 years later. I ended up doing track and field meets there and invitationals and stuff and still have friends from both sports communities in both countries. So man, good friends and sports and connecting with your family. It, it sets you up with this confidence that I think nothing else can in life. And you can carry that into so many other parts of your life. Right. Yeah. No, absolutely. So then what does, um, it's just funny because I'm here. And so, of course, we've got mutual friends in, uh, you know, in Emily McCarthy. And, yeah. you know, your backgrounds and personalities are so similar, right? So it wouldn't be, you know, it wouldn't be a shock to hear you say. And so then the CIA showed up on my door to recruit and obviously kind of went to the different the different side of the same coin, which we can kind of get into. But so what does getting involved with the Peace Corps look like? Is that a recruitment kind of process? Is that a take all comers? We'll find something for you to do. Uh, clearly you were kind of well-suited to the work that they're doing. Well, it's different um, now than it was then. So 20, 30, 40, 50. Now uh, Peace Corps began in 1960. Two with President Kennedy, so almost 70 years. It's been 60 years. Uh, back then, it was you signed up and they assigned you wherever they needed you and wherever your skills fit. Same with me. So I just uh, put in an application for Peace Corps. And at the time, you needed a college degree when I signed up. These days, you don't. And before the 80s, you didn't because it wasn't so common before the 80s. Um, But basically, you just needed a college degree. And if you had a language, then you would probably go to that region. So since I spoke uh, pretty good Spanish at that point, I thought I would get assigned to Latin or South America but we were opening up in China and they needed a lot of volunteers. So we got into China in I think 1994 um, or 96, we got in there. Um, They grew like pretty quickly and there were times when it shrunk a little, but we, by the time I got there in 2002, we had about a hundred volunteers in the country. And on average you have like 20 to 200 volunteers, depending on which country it is and how big it is. So when I went in, it was kind of at the height of our growth and our relationship with China. So I just signed up and they assigned me there. I was actually quite surprised when I got assigned to China. I was like, I'm Chinese. Yeah. They're like, that's okay. You're an English teacher. But going into Peace Corps, you have to pass the, um, the State Department language assessment at a certain level. So we had to be like moderately fluent in Chinese in three months of training before we went into our assignment. So the answer to your question is you just sign up and submit your application and they assign you. But these days you sign up and you can choose a country or a region that you want to go to. Uh, But I still advise people to just sign up and let Peace Corps choose for you because you'll get to go to a place that maybe you, you never thought you'd be able to go. Uh, It's also like flexibility is looked upon more kindly and they they want to fill the spots that they have so you just sign up you have to have some base requirements and i think a college degree or 10 years work experience or something is the base requirement and you can choose your country or not um but i think it's better to just put it up in the air and go where they need you so yeah yeah no i 
I appreciated the commentary on on your time in China just because um, here at the Solid 7 Podcast, we pretty openly bash the CCP. Um, I keep waiting for my bank accounts to get hacked or, or something like that. Um, I, I've had it confirmed, and it's a point of pride here um, through channels that I'll tell you off air that the podcast is not available in China. Uh, which we're, I mean, yeah. Which we're very, very proud keep of. Keep on talking, but I'll confirm all of your yeah, yeah, yeah. Your stuff uh, after we talk. But we always a little bit, you know, tongue in cheek. E, um, you know, when we bash China here, but we always say not the people though, not the pe-, you know Seinfeld style. But I really mean that because it's like it's true, right? The government is hot garbage. I think they're evil. Yeah. I don't think they value human life. I don't think there's shared values there. Um, all, but I think. Almost none of that applies to, I mean, when you say the party, the party's big because there's a lot of people in China, but outside of that, it's just people just trying to live. It's just trying to do what we're trying to do to make things a little better for their kids than it was for them. And, you know, it's, it's easy to sit on the outside and go, well, why do they allow that to happen? Or why do they put up with that? And like me, I'm such a, a fanboy and a student of the American Revolution. I just think it's this incredible flashpoint in human history where the revolution wasn't the war. The revolution was people getting enlightened enough to even ponder the thought that we could govern ourselves. They want it, more for themselves. Exactly. Right? And so, yeah. but when it's, when all you grow up in is a system like that, and even, even more so you look at something so closed off, uh, like North Korea yeah. to get to a point of enlightenment, to even begin to question what you've been told and experienced your whole life, let alone then to be brave enough to speak up, then let alone to go the next step and even have to take up arms if you have to, um, there's there's a lot of people in China and they could turn the tide overnight if they ever if they ever realized it and wanted it to but you can't just hand it to people. Well look at COVID-19 in Shanghai. People in Shanghai and Hong Kong started protesting the stringent requirements for testing and quarantine in the last 3 years and that was revolutionary mm-hmm. in its own right to even protest against the government. It's happening and it's the people, right? Yeah. There are problems with every government in every country, but there's some that have more problems than others, and some are more corrupt than others, and we know the ones that are more corrupt than others, and China happens to have a lot of things going on that aren't great, and I told you one of my professors boycotted me going to the Peace Corps Mm -hmm. in China because of the things they were doing in 2001 as they joined the World Trade Organization. And that was labor rights and human rights in their work camps and their prisons. It was the Uyghurs mm-hmm. already then. Yeah. It was this um, ethnic cleansing that they were doing. All things that I did not know about until I was there, you know? But then you get there and you're like, this is very interesting. And the Communist Party and the communist system in theory is really like a sound structure, but pure communism does not work. And we've seen it in Russia. We've seen it in China. Oh, we've seen it in Cuba. Well, no, but no, Jala, we, we haven't. It's never been, it's never been tried purely. They've, exactly. we've never seen pure communism. That's, that's the refrain. Exactly. So that's what I was so surprised to see when I was in China, because even party members would call it communism with capitalist characteristics. And I'm like, new thing or you're just hedging but it's so interesting to be on the inside learning about those things especially for nerds like you and i who love politics and love history and to be at that point when they had just joined the world trade organization was like 
I felt an opening up of a lot of minds, especially people, because then the development of all of these hubs, especially Chengdu, where I was in Southwest China, it just like exploded so quickly and things modernized so quickly there. Um, And all these foreign languages came in and foreign cultures that then the people started seeing what these developments were doing. And they're like, ah, capitalism is making my life a little bit better. Mm -hmm. And it's it's hard to go backwards from there. So yeah. just as you said, we've never seen pure communism. It's because capitalism, like they just don't work together. And when people get a sense of like this free market and access to these goods and trade and what this does to grow your country, um, I feel like I'm I'm towing this capitalist line, but yeah. it's it's kind of mind blowing. Yeah. <laughs> so but it's here uh, at that time was really cool to see because people are grappling with this is our way. Should we hold on to this way? But also seeing this other way and trying to meld them together. Um, not to say that the system wasn't working for the country because it was working in a certain degree, but not for everyone. And now with over a billion people, it's just really hard to continue this with an open society relatively open with the internet it's impossible to keep the secret you know it's impossible to to keep those people not seeing what's possible so they're 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 giving it the old college try (laughs) they're making a good effort of it funded by their capitalism that's Exactly. (laughs) What China has done, China has tried to solve communism's funding problem with capitalism. That's a good summation of how it goes. And, and I think at the expense of the people too, and the people are beginning to realize that. And that's a pretty interesting thing too. So I, I think it's so fascinating when you can be inside of a culture, but being observing it at the same time. So you're part of this wheel, but you're also observing the wheel. And that's what it feels like to me. Um, My other Instagram account with my husband is called a fly on the wall. And our website is flies on a wall because we always feel like we are flies on the wall in these cultures. And that's why we started that name and have that account. Uh, And my husband is that too. He's a former Green Beret. So we call that the Peace Corps of the military because Green Berets learn the language, live in the culture and build relationships with the people and have guns. So I was going to say, I mean, I've heard they also (laughs) occasionally shoot people in the face. Exactly. But (laughs) we're flies on a wall and he speaks multiple languages and uh, served in Europe in 10th group. And I met him in Afghanistan when I was doing another educational project for the Department of State, but bringing all of these uh, different perspectives on the world together and just the conversations we have and the, the things that we, we understand about the world are pretty, are pretty cool that we've had these experiences, you know? So yeah, I don't know how I got on that tangent. Oh yeah. That's what I do. That's what I do to people here. The military. (laughs) It's cool. in the wheel and observing the wheel at the same time. And that's what living in foreign cultures does for you and to you. And you probably already know what I'm going to say, but it makes you understand what it is to be an American too. When you're away from America, when you see who you are more so than when you're in it, it's really hard to see who you are and what you are and what the system is when you're in it, it's easy to complain about it. It's easy to be like, we have so many problems, but when you get away from it, you're like, man, 
had it pretty good over there. And I miss a lot of things about America. And this is what an American is. And I experienced that trajectory too. I look back at younger political Jala and she was very black or white. Like this is right and this is wrong. But when you go out into the world, you're like, oh, there's so much more going on. It's so gray. And I look back at that Jala and I'm like, oh gosh, I wish I had more of an open mind, but it took that experience to see who I was and where I came from and not to bash it and to respect it a little more. My Americanism, my heritage and all of that. You got to get away from it and be outside of the wheel to see what it is and to kind of put yourself in that culture. You know, that's my perspective. Well, and it's, you know, it's along the lines of, was it, was the the Churchill quote, which I think was about capitalism? Like it's the worst possible system ever devised except for all the others. And and it's that same kind of thing where it's like, um, you know, like you, you look at the American judicial system, uh, which of course is uh, hot and heavy in the news today as we're recording. There's some interesting things going on with the judicial system, but it's um, flawed. Absolutely. Um, Plenty of room for improvement. Absolutely. Um, Imbalanced in places, sure. Would I rather get arrested here, rightly or wrongly, than anywhere else in the world? Absolutely. Maybe Canada. I'd rather get arrested in Canada. I don't know. It's <laughs> rough up in Canada but these I, days, but I think they'd be maybe they'd be nicer about it. <laughs> yeah, and even like speaking from the perspective of a woman of color, me too. Like I, I have a different experience in the world, but. I've seen what it can be. I've lived in places at war. I've lived in the Middle East. I've been in China. I know what happens in those places. And we have a more fair system, bottom line, than most places in the world, uh, no matter who you are. And and I can say that as a woman of color, like I I really believe that. And there's a lot of... uh, people who have it hard in America. And I, I give voice to that and I respect that and I fight for that, but man, our system works a lot better than a lot of places. And we have to look at that too, because it's way more complicated than black or white. Like I young Jalo would say there's, there's injustice, but there's justice too. And hopefully we get justice more than injustice. Uh, but our system's set up to eventually get it Sometimes it takes a lot longer than other times. Yeah. That's uh, always, it's always nice to, uh, I mean, you know, I'm not flaunting and I'm glo- not gloating over anybody, but as a Christian, I'm like, oh, it always gets worked out in the end. I'm okay with it. I'm like, ultimately God will judge. I'm okay with his judgment. We get it wrong here. We'll get it right there. It's okay. Um, yeah. So a little bit of a, a Christian flex, um, <laughs> but uh, well, let's, uh, I don't want to skip over Micronesia, but I also like hear this looming clock ticking in the background right now with so much <laughs> yeah. that I want to get to. So let's fast forward a little bit, kind of how do you end up at, at state and ultimately kind of in Afghanistan? Yeah. And that can segue into selection eventually too. Uh, the Department of State has a program called the English Language Fellows Program, and it's kind of like paid Peace Corps. So after Peace Corps, I came back to the United States. I was a Forest Service firefighter for a while, so we could talk about that in another podcast, which That's, was the most awesome job. That is so but, awesome and random. <laughs> but young Jala was like, I can't be a firefighter for the rest of my life. I want to punch that Jala in the face. You could have. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I went to graduate school and I got my uh, graduate degree in linguistics and teaching English as a foreign language, as a second language. Um, And then I ended up being an adjunct professor at Santa Barbara City College and UC Santa Barbara in Santa Barbara, California. And I really loved it. And I had a mentor there that told me about the English Language Fellows Program with the Department of State. It's a one-year teaching fellowship. So you teach in another country for one year. And uh, it's not an exchange, so we don't get someone back. We just send someone to another country. But it's 10 months in another country, and you're a paid professor to either train teachers or teach English at a university. So it's like Peace Corps for professionals. Right. And uh, at the time when I went into the English Language Fellows, excuse me, program, you could be a junior English Language Fellow, which is ELF. (laughs) Nice. A senior elf and senior English language fellows trained teachers at the university and in the schools and juniors were professors at the universities. So I applied in 2009. And at the time, Afghanistan was becoming a little bit safer and a little more secure. And so it was amazing. My boss at the time, his name was Stephen Hanshi and another um, Department of State co-worker was Joelle I forgot her last name, but they were my bosses at Department of State and they worked really hard to get a program in Afghanistan. And so they had one fellow before me who it didn't work out because they made him live at the embassy and the embassy motor pool in Kabul, Afghanistan is used by important people. And so an English language fellow barely ever got out of the embassy and couldn't teach outside of the Mm -hmm. green line because he could never get to his job. So this poor guy, he ended up just like not doing the fellowship after three months, it fizzled, he couldn't get to school. And so they really pushed for these English language fellows to live in the community in Kabul, away from the embassy, outside of the green line. So if you guys aren't familiar with the terms, the green line is like the safe militarized zone in Kabul where all the embassies are and the base Camp Eggers was at the time. Um, safe in quotation marks, right? So they pushed for us to have a very Peace Corps experience living with Afghans in Kabul out outside of the Green Line. And somehow they got it signed off by the Secretary of State, all the people at Department of State, the ambassador. And so I and another lady, Tara, who has the exact same birthday as me, we both got assigned to be the first fellows in Kabul, Afghanistan, uh, oh senior gosh. fellows, training teachers all over the country. And uh, we lived outside of the Green Line in, they call it Shari now, the new city in Kabul. Um, and so we got assigned to Kabul in uh, 2010. Tara and I hopped on a plane to Dubai and got to Dubai, put our chadar, our headscarf on in the airport. And we had read stories about like, commercial airlines having to spiral into Kabul to avoid the surface to air missiles, which at some point I'm sure they did, but we were like, when does the spiral start? (laughs) (laughs) Didn't, didn't happen. We just landed at the Kabul international airport, which if you think of the initials, it's K I a, which is terrible. Yeah. It's a a problem (laughs) going into (laughs) Afghanistan, but yeah, I was the first fellow in Afghanistan living outside of the Green Line. I worked at Kabul Education University and Kabul University, which is like the Harvard of Afghanistan, training teachers and teaching some English there. Um, we moved mostly freely uh, with other women during the day, or I had, I called them my brothers. They were some students that adopted me and they would come over in a group of three men so I could walk um, in the streets and explore with a male escort. 
but it was a relatively safe-ish time. There were probably suicide bombings in the market like once or twice a week at that time, but generally they were targeting members of parliament or important people and military convoys and stuff like that. So if you were uh, aware of your surroundings and just not in those places, then you pretty much could avoid violence. The nighttime's another story. This is when insurgencies happen because if you know anything about military tactics, it happens at night. (laughs) So it was relatively safe for us. We didn't go outside at night. We went outside with Afghans. Uh, Tara and I both spoke Dari. She was much better than I was, but we learned Dari. We wore local clothes. A side story, I trained for the CrossFit Games that year, trying to make the CrossFit Games. So that's that's how I met my husband. I was going to Camp Eggers in Kabul, on the military base to lift weights every Friday. And he was lifting there too at the time. So I got to train and meet him and hang out with him. But um, I actually got my Afghan brothers, my friends to take me to the weightlifting bodybuilding street in Kabul. And we bought a barbell and bumper plates. And so I had it in my basement of my apartment in Kabul, Afghanistan. And the the Nepali security guards that guarded my building would come down and watch me lift weights in like a full long dress and pants and a headscarf and just be baffled by me snatching in my full Muslim garb. But man, I loved my fellowship there. There were things that happened that just really opened my eyes to what's important in life and uh, what's important to work for. And it was a pivotal point in my life. I ended up going back there for two special assignments. So I was in Afghanistan for a lot of 2010 to 2012, just learning and teaching and and being and just falling in love with the people again and the culture. So you've just literally chuckled your way through this whole story. But at its at its root, you're this American woman going into this still by a lot of metrics, a war zone yeah. where the people who are blowing themselves up in markets and working as insurgents aren't particularly fond of Americans or women or of, wait for it, any woman from anywhere being taught anything. Yeah. And so, you know, there's a lot of strikes against you (laughs) going into this situation. Yeah. I mean, I was, I'm not ashamed, but I felt a little ashamed once I got to know the people in the markets. I'd speak Dari. Um, It's a, it's the Afghan version of Farsi. Really. I would speak Dari in the markets and people would say, Oh, wow. Where are you from? Your Dari is so different. And I would say Iran because of the things that you said, I'm like, yeah, I'm from Iran just because a lot of Kabulis people in Kabul like had never met a foreigner at that point in time. You know, um, it's a young country. People die early there. Like yeah. people in the markets were probably younger <laughs> than me. Um, so I, I felt ashamed after a while. I was like, but no, I'm American and they should know I'm a good person and I'm speaking their language and stuff. So, um, the state department advised me not to say so, but as I got to know people in the market and, uh, would understand who they were as far as I believed, I would tell them like, I am American. All of my students and people at the university knew that, but I really wanted people to see like, I'm American. I respect your religion. I'm wearing a headscarf. I'm speaking Dari. I live here. I don't have a gun. You know, I wanted to show all those things to regular people. And if it was dangerous 
whatever to me, it was kind of righteous. I was doing the work that I wanted to do and exhibiting to people that Americans care. Um, I would tell them the projects that I was doing. I would spend time with my Afghan friends walking through the market and seeing the things and going to the places. I spent time in Makaroyan, which is like, uh, it's kind of a, an old Russian apartment block, but one of the most popular middle-class apartment blocks in Kabul. And it's actually quite frequently bombed because members of parliament and people live there. But I spent a lot of time in Makaroyan, even though it's dangerous, like talking to the people in the market, because I wanted people to know that I was American and trying to learn and figure out like what went wrong in this relationship between our countries and like who they were. So yeah, sometimes I would be like, yeah, I'm from Iran. If I didn't know who I was talking yeah. to, but most of the times, man, I was like, yeah, I'm American. Look at me. Isn't that awesome? And it felt good to, to be doing the work, but also getting to know the people. And, and I say this to people all the time. It feels really good when you're the representation of your culture and your country. And that's the experience that someone will have with America, with an English speaker, with a female from America, with a female Puerto Rican from America. Like some people will never meet an American again in the places that I went. And I'm the idea that they have. So I better be really the best that America can offer. I want to be strong. I want to be gentle. I want to speak the language. I want to not make mistakes and respect the culture and religion. And it's hard to be, yeah. but it's such a great challenge. And you learn so much about yourself and who you are that it's a great place to be. And that's why I believe I was safe in Kabul and safe in the places I went because I integrated into the community. Uh, I remember, so we had a driver, the Asia Foundation, which is a huge nonprofit in Southeast and Central Asia sponsored Tara and I as fellows because you still need a driver to take you around. You can't just take a taxi and couple <laughs> as a single woman. So we had a driver from the Asia Foundation, but then one day we didn't and a different driver showed up. Later on, we found out that the driver we had was trying to kidnap us for ransom. So a plan was foiled and all of this. Uh, but my point is one of the Nepalese guards at our building heard from an Afghan in our building that this driver was from this tribe and it filtered down to the state department and whoever, whoever, and that driver got fired. But because Tara and I knew people in our building and in the community cared about us, yeah. like maybe if they would have made a lot of money and they didn't know us, they would be like, yeah, she's going to be at that store at that time or whatever. Yeah. But building these relationships and these cultures and just understanding that people are good at their core, like I said earlier, is, is pretty awesome, you know? Gosh, I, <laughs> I've got such a strong urge to dive in here and I'm going to fight it. And I'm, I'm making mental notes of how many additional episodes we're going to have to have. Um, but uh, so I, I want to fast forward you against my better judgment. Yeah. So um, yeah, go to Afghanistan a few times. You come out alive. You snag a husband while you're there. Um, <laughs> so uh, give me the, the 32nd version that gets you from there to, to Goruk. How do you find Goruk? Yeah. Uh, so my husband, Larry, he was a Green Beret. And as I, um, when I left Afghanistan, he was still there doing some contract work, but I knew that he had all these Green Beret things, knowledge pieces, and I was getting into ultra endurance stuff. And I was doing another ultra endurance event in 2013 called the Endeavor Team Challenge. It's a two-person 
uh, ultra endurance event in Northern California. A lot of selection participants and finishers have done it now too. I actually won the event in 2015 with Paige, the only woman who's ever finished GORAC selection. But Larry, my husband, he was like my training piece for all these questions like, why don't I wear cotton socks? And just like stuff that you should know as an right, ultra right. endurance athlete. But I was asking him as I built up for this thing. Uh, we didn't see each other for four years after I met him. We just talked on Facebook, really. Um, so he helped me get into the Endeavor Team Challenge. And the first year I did Endeavor Team Challenge was my first year I was not competing in CrossFit. And I was like, what other hard endurance things can I do? And someone in that world told me about GORUCK. They're like, have you heard of these GORUCK things? I was like, no, tell me about that. And he told me about the tough and the light and the heavy. And I was like, I don't really like team things. I ran track (laughs) growing up. I'm like, is there anything individual I could do? He's like, oh, there's only one individual one and it's called selection and it's 48 hours long and only one female has ever finished. I was like, I'm going to do that. And he's like, but you've never done any Goruk things. I'm like, whatever. So I signed up for Goruk selection in 2014. I've never done any oh Goruk event. I was gosh. just like, I want to do the individual one. And why have no, no women finished this? What's wrong with them? So I started studying and reading up on it in 2013. And I trained for that year into my first selection. So my knowledge of selection came from the endurance world. And uh, my entrance into Goruk was. 2014 selection. However, my you had, CrossFit you hadn't go done ahead. a GORUCK. You had not done a GORUCK event prior to that. I did just because my friends at the CrossFit gym were like, "Don't you want to do an event and like see how your gear works and see all the stuff that happens before you do selection?" I'm like, "Yeah, sure. If you guys will do it with me." So I ended up doing one GORUCK tough in uh, Northern California, well, Central California, Santa Barbara. Uh, in May before of 2014 selection, which would be October. And when I did that tough, I was like, that was the hardest thing I've ever done. What am I doing? (laughs) Which is funny because I was just about to say, it's funny, the idea of, I mean, it's good to go and get a taste, but the idea of doing a normal GORUCK event to gain an understanding of what selection (laughs) is, is so comical because they're such different beasts. But I mean, also... I did that go rug tough with a 45 pound pack. Cause I thought like, that's what you're supposed to do. You know how large I am for the listeners. I'm five foot four. And at that time I weighed 125 pounds. Now I'm about 130. Cause I have a lot more muscle, but I'm not a big person. Like I'm a pretty small woman and 45 pounds dry in a rucksack turns into 60 pounds yes. when it's wet with all your stuff in it. So that's almost half my body weight just to start the event, not with any like sandbags or carrying stuff or dragging humans. So I was like, yeah, this is doable. I'm going to do it. <laughs> so I did that tough with a 45 pound. Oh my gosh. And, uh, I actually put all my weight in a North face backpack and the strap ripped and I had to like tie it back together. I didn't have a ruck yet. You know, it was just like a disaster. And I was like, well, I have to do it now because this was so hard. I have to redeem myself. So I got a ruck, I got some boots and I started training really hard. And, and you guys might have an idea of the kind of person I am, but I contacted every single selection finisher who would ever finish <laughs> everyone and asked them all the questions. Which at and, that time, there were not yeah. many. It had been mostly black classes. 
Well, there were by that time. So my first class was class 15 and there were about 15 to 16 finishers, not including the test class zero, because there were, I think, 11 finishers in class zero, the beach class. Um, So not including class zero, there were about 15 more. And uh, so I had contacted like everyone and selection finishers are awesome. They want you to pass too. So almost everyone responded to me that I contacted and I'm actually like pretty close to Grant Shimsky over many years. He finished the uh, class three, two or three, I think, um, got really close to Paige, the only female selection finisher who I did an endurance race with the next year. Like I told you, um, I'm really close to Eric Kling too. I talked to him quite frequently. I was close to Mark Pierce back in the day, lost a little touch with him, but everyone is so sweet and they want you to pass too. Yeah. Uh, that I got so much intel and so much info and not one person was like, you're effing crazy. They were all super supportive and nobody told me like, this is going to be hard. It's going to be terrible. Yes. <laughs> it's just like, so they I, gave me the intel. <laughs> I, I want to inject real quick for listeners who are, who are newer and are like, what in the world is go ruck selection? We don't, oh, yeah. we don't have time. We don't have time. Go back to episode 85. We had Gabe Martinez from Go Ruck Scars on. He was fresh okay. off of his attempt uh, at selection, and uh, we we go in depth into into what selection is. So, if you want, pause, go listen to that. You'll understand. Come come back. So, where was the the first one you tried then? Uh, the first one was in <coughs> Jacksonville, Beach, Florida. Okay. And actually, another thing on what is Go Ruck Selection? Watch the movie The Selection yes. that they made about Go Ruck it's Selection. It's fantastic. It was actually my fifth attempt at the event. So. <laughs> My first one was Jacksonville Beach, Florida. Um, I did really well. Um, as you get to know selection, you'll see that the PT test of the day was hard to pass. Like maybe half of the class would pass each PT test and start the event. I never failed a PT test. So I was always physically ready for these events. Um, but the first one I was in, we call it the welcome party. It's like the first 10 to whatever hours of the event where they're just beating you down and the work never stops. I couldn't drag this man out of the water with his rucksack on him with my rucksack on me. And they, you know, get in your face and tell you you're failing, but I didn't know the mental games yet. So I ended up quitting that event and all of those selection finishers that were there were like, what? You were doing so well. And so I ended up like, really confident that my second try I could pass because I had all this intel and all these ideas from the outside. So then I went to Bozeman, Montana. That was my second selection. That's when Stoney Smith passed and it was a super cold night, super hot day. There were forest fires. It was like this orange tinge. I got hypothermia and lost consciousness. So I was done in that selection. I also made it into the first night um, yeah, so selection is now only in Ohio at Jason's Ranch or Jacksonville, Florida well, headquarters. No, no, of logistics. It's going to be a normal. I was about to say, or now Normandy. That was big news. <laughs> That's going to be special. Um, but it's only in one of two places, yeah. uh, two places because of logistics and how things go. Um, third one I did was in Bellbrook, fourth one I did was in. Bellbrook again, and then Jacksonville beach and Jacksonville beach. So, or no, uh, alternate those. So I've done two in Bellbrook, three in Jacksonville beach and one in Bozeman, Montana, six selections, but 
Yeah. So I ended up doing it a lot of times. <laughs> I was going to ask which location is, I don't know the right way to phrase it. The best, the worst. I, <laughs> is it just equal amounts of suck? Yeah. All of them suck in their own way. So Montana was altitude and cold. That was hard, but I learned how to be cold. And I, I went into like a deep dive into how to be good in the cold going into my Bellbrook selection after that. Uh, I did Wim Hof method. I did like cold showers and got really into like how to control your breathing and stuff like that. So that when I was in Bellbrook, it was cold again, but I was like hot (laughs) that I was so good at dealing with cold that I was feeling hot. Um, so Bozeman was high altitude and cold. That was hard. Jacksonville beach is just the most chafing you can ever imagine. I I just rather not deal with the sand. you're just crawling in sand and the sand there is sometimes like broken up seashells. Mm-hmm. And so you're like dragging your skin oh. on seashells and sand and it's salt water and it gets everywhere and everything chafes against each other. So that's like Jacksonville beach is like the worst for your skin and that feeling of just chafing everywhere. My favorite location is really Ohio. You're crawling and falling and throwing and doing all the things, but it's grass. So don't get any bruises. Like if you ever looked at my body coming back from any selection, Bellbrook, you get bruises, but it's just not as bad as like hard ground or shells. It's like this forgiving fall, (laughs) muddy, grassy river bugs, but it's still forgiving. Like I took a hot nap in the bushes during my... sixth selection in Bellbrook, we were doing a, the 12 mile ruck, which ended up um, being in the middle of the night. We did a five mile ruck as part of our PT test from one location to another and late into the night. So 12 to 14 hours into the event, we were doing these one mile circuits around Jason's farm in the middle of the night. And if anyone knows me as an athlete in Goruk, I'm a really good rucker. So I've always been like in the top three of our 12 mile ruck whenever we do it. So this is kind of a rest time for me. I'm a small person that can move fast with a moderate amount of weight. So I almost got a mile ahead of uh, most of the field. There are a few men behind me. And so I was like going to the bathroom in the bushes and taking my time eating like a piece of bread I had in my ruck. When I sat down for a second, And I guess I fell asleep because our friend, (laughs) he might've, I don't know if he's been on your podcast, Joe Baker. Mm -mm. Um, He hasn't yet. He's got to be on here too. He's an amazing person. Yeah. Uh, Joe Baker comes around and I, I kind of like roll out of the bushes and he's like, ah, I was like, oh, I was just sleeping. He's like, I caught up with you. I was like, yeah, I should wake up now. <laughs> like, want some bread and came out of the bushes. But that's kind of how forgiving the terrain is there. Yeah. It's not like terrible bugs like in Jacksonville. So Bellbrook is my favorite because it's like soft and kind of slow terrain. Oh, was, yeah. Again, I'm going to pass on so much that I want to dig into. Um, I mean, I could do a, right. I could do a whole podcast on anybody attempting selection that many times to begin yeah. with, uh, but I want to get to one more thing before we we've got to yeah, let you, before we've got to let you go, um, which is you know uh, for all these uh, challenges and endurance events, um, not long ago um, somehow you stumbled upon this just fantastic idea to um, <laughs> try and set a rucking world record. Uh, for, for a good cause to raise some money for, uh, our friends here over at, uh, at the gift team and, uh, things went 
a little sideways. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, how did this come about? It came about because I failed selection for the sixth time. And I was like, I need to put all of this training and energy into something for other people. Selection is really an inner journey. And you really find out like who you are as a person and an, as an athlete. And uh, anyone who has trained for more than one selection will tell you this, like, you're basically a professional athlete who's not a professional athlete. There's so much training and details that are involved with actually wanting to finish selection that you contribute so much of your soul and being to it. Even if you have three other full-time jobs in a family, it's like the most unforgiving block of training. And I, I trained for it for eight years of my life. And so I'm like, gosh, this is, this is pivotal for me after eight years and six attempts at this event. I really should use all this fitness for something that's easy for me. So I was like, ah, 24 hours rucking with a 20 pound ruck. I'm like, that is a run. I'm going to do a hundred miles. And the world record at the time was like 62 or something so easy. I was like, this is an easy thing that I really like to do. And I'm going to raise money for the give team. And my friend Wes uh, was going to try to get the world record too. So it was a genderless world record. So we were kind of like pushing each other to go harder and just like, see who could get it. Um, so we decided to do 24 hours, 20 pound ruck, trying to get the world record, which was like a measly 62 miles. We're like, this is in the bag. Um, you have to do it at a track because it has to all be on video. Gosh, who has that job of reviewing 24 yes. hours video? Um, for the Guinness world records to review. So we were going to do it at Quantico. Wes is a Marine Quantico Marine base track. We're going to do it in July because F the heat, we can do that. <laughs> so we're in Northern Virginia in July, it's about 95 degrees on the day of our attempt, which is totally fine. Wes and I had trained in this, uh, and we felt like our hydration and nutrition were up to snuff and we were ready to go. Um, started at 7 a.m. one morning and we're going to finish at 7 a.m. the next morning because we wanted the nighttime to be the second 12 hours. We wanted it to be cooler yeah. for the second half of the run. Um, long story short, on a track, you have access to water and food as you wish. In an ultra endurance event, you have to ration your water to last. So I had the opposite problem an abundance of water. And I was over drinking because it was hot. I was sweating a ton. I was wearing pants and a long sleeve shirt to try to keep the sun off of my skin. Mm -hmm. Um, Wes went the other way and wore short sleeves and shorts to try to get that, um, that evaporative effect with your sweat. Um, both of us made some mistakes, but my mistake was over hydrating, drinking too much water. So hyponatremia is when you have water poisoning. So too much water in your system you dilute your sodium. So we have sodium, potassium, and chloride electrolytes in our body. And there's a very delicate balance of those electrolytes. And uh, we hear a lot about electrolytes in the endurance world, but they're in your body and they do the things that make yes. you live, like yeah. transmit your brain function and send electric magnetic impulses through your brain. And like, it's super important to have your sodium, potassium, and chloride at a certain certain level or else you die. And it's super delicate, but super efficient the way your body works. But if you overdrink water, you dilute your sodium so much that it can't do what it's supposed to do. So when there's too much water in your cells, they start swelling to try to expel that water. Your brain is a big cell and guess what? There's a skull around it. So when your brain swells to expel that water, it has too much in there. 
uh, it can't swell beyond where your skull is and it'll start blocking all those electromagnetic impulses. And then you have a seizure and you die. So I didn't know it was a thing, but I did know it was a thing because after it happened, I went back and read a training manual I wrote for GORUCK and I wrote a whole page on hyponatremia. But but, uh, I did get hyponatremia. At the time, my husband thought it was dehydration because that would make sense, right? It was really hot. About 14 hours into the event, maybe 16, I can't remember. I was like slurring and swaying on the track. So husband stopped and was like, you're dehydrated. You got to drink water, eat food. uh, And then we'll... We'll see if you can keep this food down. You also start vomiting all the water too, because you're just trying to get it out of your body. So he tells me I was vomiting for like many, many minutes straight. You know, you vomit and it's done, but he's like, that was concerning. So I decided it was time to pull the plug and take you to the hospital. Let's get an IV so we can get you hydrated. Uh, it was exactly the right time. He got me in the car and that's the last thing I remember. I woke up in the hospital a couple days later. Uh, I did have hyponatremia. When he got me in the car, I had a tonic clonic seizure, which is, uh, used to be known as a grand mal seizure. So complete body seizure, eyes roll back in your head. Um, it happened in the car at the security gate. So there was a military police there, which is very lucky. So they called the ambulance. They came quite quickly, as my husband tells me. Um, but I was instantly in a coma after that seizure. So got me to the hospital, figured out that my sodium was greatly diluted to like your dead levels. Uh, and then they started the process of bringing me back to life with fluids, right? Um and a good balance of them. So I was in a coma and they have to raise your sodium quite slowly or else you could die of brain dysfunction. Um, but I was in a coma too long. So by the end of about 24 hours, they're like, Hey husband, you either have to raise the sodium a little faster or she might be in a coma forever. And if you raise the sodium a little bit faster, she might have brain damage. How do you make that choice, man? (laughs) Uh, my husband's like, well, I choose life. So let's do the part where she lives. And so they raised my sodium quite fast. Um, at the end of the last five milliliter increment, I woke up from the coma. Uh, I was like super combative. <laughs> and so they had to put me in a medically induced coma again. So I wouldn't rip all of my right. stuff, my arms. Um, but the effect of that is obviously I lived, but I had, um, not brain damage because my brain was functioning properly, but the effect is I had really bad migraines and vertigo and dizziness as I recovered from this event. Um, I didn't have any memory of very recent things and, and things that we all should know, like how to write our names and what our last name was, like who the president was. For many days, uh, writing was hard for a couple of weeks, so I had to kind of relearn writing. Uh, really easy things that like the shape of buildings, my eyes were perceiving things differently. So hard edges looked round and that's a little bit from brain swelling, but also that my brain was like relearning all the things around it. It's just, it was just like a very crazy, surreal experience to come back from, but I did recover and things are like pretty, pretty good. There's still a lot uh, that I don't remember from that three-day period, which you never will because you were in a coma. Um, But yeah, I still have headaches. I still get vertigo, but it's dissipating and I'm getting closer to a year. It's been 11 months. So 
Which taking it all the way back to the jump, that that was why yeah. Jala turned down our offer of Jocko Go. Was uh, it was yeah. no disrespect to Jocko. It was just that caffeine exacerbates some of those yeah. persistent symptoms. Yeah. So yeah. Kale said, "Hey, what you want some Jocko Go? Give me your address." I was like, "Man, that's so nice." But we discovered that you know caffeine enhances people's cognitive function. It's a great thing, uh, a certain amount, right? But for me, it it enhances vertigo and yeah. headaches. And so I started drinking decaf. I thought I would never be a decaf person, but I love the taste of coffee. So I still drink it. Yeah. And that's where decaf comes in. This is where black and white Jala would be like, what? <laughs> You're drinking decaf? It's not real coffee. Uh, but now older Jala that sees all the gray is like, oh yeah, I love the taste of coffee. So I drink decaf. Now, I have to say, Jala, this is, <laughs> I would be the last person to mock someone's coma or misfortune. So this is not that. This is just the way God lined things up. But just today, as we're recording, Jocko Fuel released their new Jocko Hydrate packets. Yes. And it only seems fitting that the Solid 7 podcast sends you your first package of Jocko Hydrate. In our effort, both to thank you for coming on and to make sure that you don't ever overhydrate without electrolytes again. Yes. Let me give a shout out to TPK Endurance and Odette and I forgot her husband's name. TPK Endurance. I I've been coming back slowly from my brain injury and I just did their um 60k run the jewels uh ultra in New Jersey a couple weekends ago. And I ended up getting third overall female oh and their course was like 62k-ish. I ran like 40 miles and it was supposed to be like 38, but whatever. Yeah. So TVK endurance, they had a great event and that was like, I'm coming back. I think I feel like it's slowly, but it's only been 11 months and yeah. I just podiumed in an ultra and I podiumed in a half marathon. Well, and you did brag heavy. Yeah. Did you do heavy or I heavy, did, heavy? I did heavy, tough, basic. I did the oh whole, all three events. So I did a 48 hour event in March. Um, so I'm coming back. Uh, my ultimate goal is to get a marathon PR at the Marine Corps Marathon uh, coming up at the end of October. That would be like a sub 320 marathon. Um, but I think like a big, hairy, audacious goal is to try to qualify for the marathon Olympic trials in the next couple of years. That one's a scary goal that I have. I want to focus on things that bring me joy and uh running's one of them and I haven't really focused on it. So let's see what happens. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, I, you know, there's so much that I wanted to, to talk to you about uh, that we haven't covered, let alone the things I want to keep talking about that we have covered. So we, I you know, want to talk tribe kids. I want to talk the specialized, yeah. specialized training that you're working on now. Um, oh my gosh, you know, yeah. love to, to hear about your experiences just as a teacher. I mean, you've taught at all kinds of levels, um, you know, so definitely want to have you back on. But uh, I, there was a little back and forth with Brad and I that I, that I wanted to kind of oh, yeah. get, get in before we close with, which was, we were talking about this experience and he was kind of relaying how things went from his point of view. Uh, you know, they were up there kind of working as your service station for the, for the yeah. world record attempt. Um, and you know, this was, this was me pontificating where like, because of all this media and everything else and all the people I know around you, I feel like I know you, even though I don't know you and like <laughs> listening to your, your fit talk. And I'm like, Brad, do you think she's going to try again? And he didn't really want to venture a guess. I'm like, if I had to guess, I bet you, I bet she'd try again. Because I feel like, you know, looking at your, your multiple 
Uh, and I'm not encouraging you to, and I certainly wouldn't rush you to. And no one, me included, would ever judge you if you didn't. But I'm just like, I look at all these selection attempts, and I'm like, I bet once the recovery is far enough along, she's going to look back at this thing and be like, no, I'm going to beat it. That, that was my guess. Where yeah, I think you guessed right. And I was considering doing it in the winter back in December. I told Wes, like, <laughs> let's do this again in five months. And my husband and my family is like, slow down yes, there. Yes, good for them. Yes. So, you know, that's where my head was. And I, I would like to go towards that Olympic trials marathon goal that I've just like put out into the world. So it makes it even scarier to be like so old and want to do this big, hairy, audacious goal, I call it. Uh, but yes, that's at the back of my mind and I would be more cautious about how I did hydrate, but I know a lot about hyponatremia and I know a lot more about that since it happened. So I think your guess is right. And we'll see, um, Wes ended up getting the world record that night, but then Guinness is slow because there's a whole world of records, (laughs) no pun intended that they analyze. And some guy had run 91 miles in April. So we already beat our attempt in July. And so now we'd have to run a hundred miles with a 20 pound ruck in 24 hours. Well, at least 92 to beat this guy that did it in um, April. So we didn't even know that mileage when we were attempting it, but it came out like five days after my hospital stay because I was looking at it to put Wes's record in there. And I was like, dude, Wes, you don't even have to submit. This guy got 91 miles. He's like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's something on my mind. We'll see what happens. Well, we'll we'll be watching. uh, And if and when it happens again. Yeah, full uh, promotion on the Silent 7 podcast. Support from us. I think it's Brandon from TPK Endurance. Sorry. Nice. Perfect. No, shout outs are important. Got to get them right. Well, seriously, thank you so much for coming on. This has been so much fun. 100% have to have you back here in the near future. Listeners, I just can't even tell you how much other cool stuff there is um, that that Jala's doing it into uh, that we can cover on the podcast. So hopefully we get uh, a chance to do that and just really appreciate you coming on. Listeners, appreciate you tuning in and, and sticking out with us. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, just, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about support on here and uh, and good causes. Uh, and the Sounds of a Podcast is just a fantastic cause. And so one of the easiest ways to support us, whatever podcast app you're on, if you haven't already, hit subscribe or follow. Give us a little thumbs up or five stars or even like reviews are awesome. Awesome. That really helps push us out to the algorithm, and those are a lot of fun to read. We read all of them and disagree with very few of them, so uh, always a positive <laughs> experience. If you haven't already, stop by the uh, the website, solid7podcast.com. It's solid7podcast.com. There's links to episodes on there, links to good causes, uh, like the Give Team, Step Up Foundation, um, you know, all that stuff's on there, upcoming events. So it's just a, just a fun place to be on the internet. So stop by and uh, Jala, thank you again. Welcome on the podcast. Anytime, say the word. Yeah, we'd love to have you back. Thanks a lot, Kale. It was nice to talk to you. <laughs> you too. And uh, listeners, we love you and we're out. The Solid 7 Podcast is fueled by Jocko Go. Engineered for anyone who wants to get after it in life, pre-meeting, pre-testing, pre-negotiation, or pre-mission. If you're looking for an extra cognitive or physical edge, Jocko Go is your force multiplier. With 95 milligrams of caffeine and zero sugar, 
the keto-friendly Jocko Go will give you a physical and cognitive boost without the crash that you experience with average energy drinks. Visit JockoFuel.com today, and you can use our promo code SOLID7, that's S-O-L-I-D-7, to get 10% off your order, get on the path, and get after it. Oh, and because lawyers exist, these statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration, and this product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.